Welcome to Wild on Health, your weekly holistic prescription for living healthy naturally. Lifespan, that's simply the time you'll clock on this planet. Whereas health span, however, is the time you'll spend living your life in optimal mental and physical health. Join me on Seeking Health Span, a podcast loaded with sensible recommendations and tips intended to put quality years on your life. Today's a treat. Rob Wolf, a former research biochemist, multiple New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob's transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, many books, and seminars. Rob, let me tell you, deals in real-world, sensible, innovative, evidence-based health advice. Welcome to Wild on Health, Seeking Health Span, my friend. Huge honor to be here. Thank you. So you're a biochemist turned health advocate. And what I find really interesting is this seeming deep desire you've got to constantly trailblaze. It's not the easiest path forward, but it seems you get this gratification from popularizing infamous theories. By example, putting the paleo lifestyle on the map before that was even a thing. So let's start by telling us about your own personal health challenge that initially sent you in this direction. Yeah, you know, I've always been interested in health and human performance. Uh, Both of my parents were pretty sick as I grew up, you know, just kind of looking back. Both of them smoked. My dad drank a fair amount. Both of them ended up developing type 2 diabetes pretty, pretty early. Like I'm hoping to never develop it. So I mean, you know, any, any time is kind of too early for me, but uh, I had a sneaky suspicion that, uh, eating better, exercising, not smoking, you know, could lead to better outcomes. Like, uh, uh, neither one of my parents, uh, uh, aging looked like a particularly enjoyable process. I just turned 50 recently and I would love to be 30 wow. again, but I, I never will be, but at, at 50, I still feel like I motor long pretty well. I do some Brazilian jujitsu and lift some weights and keep up with my, my kids and everything. But uh, I, I was experimenting with nutrition a lot at, at that time. This was 1996 up through 1998. I started tinkering with a, a high carb, low fat vegan diet. And I think that a vegan diet can work wonderfully for some people. For me, it was an absolute disaster. Uh, I ended up developing ulcerative colitis, which is an inflammatory bowel issue. Uh, so bad that I was facing, a uh, pretty significant surgery where they wanted to cut a big section of that real estate out. Um, the, the medications that deal with that are immunosuppressant drugs, which have a really poor shelf life. If you want to live a a long, healthy, productive life. And I was, it's interesting because I was right at this spot where I was considering going to medical school or doing a PhD track in, in research. I was doing some bench chemistry at a cancer research facility up in Seattle at that time. So it was really this weird crossroads, but I, I needed to get my health figured out. And it's a, it's kind of a long story how this idea of a low carb paleo type diet got on my radar, but it, it did. And when I looked at the little bit of available information back in 1998 about gut health and autoimmunity, which was all of the stuff that I had going on. I felt like the, you know, I had nothing to lose for sure because sure. I was so sick at that point. I, I'm a hundred and I'm five, nine, 165 pounds at the low web of my ulcerative colitis. I was 125 pounds because wow. I just couldn't absorb anything. My hair was falling out. My nails were falling out. I was a disaster. So I was kind of like, I'm going to die if I don't do something. So doing something crazy maybe isn't that 
crazy actually. And so I, I tried what was basically a, a gluten-free low carb paleo type diet. And for me, it was nothing short of miraculous. It, it fixed a ton of the issues that I had going on. I've continued to not be perfect, but I've iterated over time. Like I I've kept tinkering and fiddling with things. And uh, honestly, my gut health has gotten better as, as time has gone on, but that was uh, 23 years ago. I decided, um, to not pursue either research or, uh, a, a, you know, standard medical track, but it was right around this time that I found this weird workout online called CrossFit. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that and, uh, working out with a friend of mine, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy seal. And we were working out in his garage. And within about three or four months of doing that, we had about 15 people. We were training in his garage doing this weird CrossFit thing. And this is around like 2001 and Dave and I were talking and he hated being an electrical engineer. I didn't really enjoy doing the, the research that I, I was doing, not as much as I did just working with people in a gym. I, I really liked that. Like that was the type of medicine that I wanted to practice talking about sleep and food and exercise and having a, having a good time talking to people. And we reached out to the founders of CrossFit, Greg and Lauren Glassman and told them what we were up to. I said, Hey, we'd like to open a gym and call it CrossFit. And they said, go be achieve. And so that was the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, uh, CrossFit North. And then I had a chance to move back down to Chico, California, where I did my undergrad and opened what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, CrossFit NorCal, NorCal Strength and Conditioning. And so I kind of took this paleo diet concept that I had been exposed to, and I, I did a research fellowship with Lauren Cordain, uh, who's kind of the, the godfather, the, the paleo diet sure. concept. Sure. And, um, and I was able to apply this both in our brick and mortar gym, but also in working with CrossFit for a number of years. So I just got to work with thousands of people, uh, police, military, firefighters, uh, you know, standard folks. And the, it, as cool as it is to work with kind of elite high level performers, the, the real center of the bullseye for me were people like me, folks who had really complex gut and autoimmune issues. They had run the gauntlet of conventional medical treatment and maybe had some help, but they were still sick. They were sicker than what they wanted to be. And I I was pretty sure that I could help those folks. And so that's really been the center of the bullseye and the, the area that I've focused a lot on. And then I guess in the past, you know, maybe like six years, I've also put a lot of effort into the regenerative agriculture scene. I, I over my shoulder, you can see a, a book cover called Sacred Cow. And that's Great a book, book. that I, I Loved it. wrote. Yeah. D- digging into the uh, ethical, environmental and health considerations of a meat inclusive food system. Such an argument to be made there. Maybe we'll have time to dig into that a little bit more today, but love the backstory. And of course, gaining those insights into your personal health, boy, you irrefutably put some significant quality years on your life. And of course, that that cohort of folks that are already motivated to move their body, you know, those that are in the uh, the realm of, of fitness, particularly in, you know, the the hit sort of model, um, you know, they're already motivated. But I, I imagine, you know, that platform being able to share the message around, uh, you know, health from a nutritional perspective, and certainly your experience, um, and of one around uh, what I would suspect was immunomodulation through diet. I mean, balancing your immune system. But let me ask you this. Did you have sort of a finger on the pulse um, as it pertained to what you were doing to yourself? Were you able to sort of track 
biomarkers and actually see? Or was it just subjective? Like, were you just sort of, wow, I feel so much better. My ulcerative colitis is in remission now. I've got more energy. And you kind of went with that. Yeah. You know, it's funny, given that I was a biochemist in my past life, yeah. I, um, I'm very experiential on this stuff. Like I, uh, I've done the, the trackers and the wearables, you know, HRV and all that. Uh, I I've done the, uh, continuous glucose monitors. I find them valuable, but I also feel like most of them have a, a life cycle on them, yeah. you know, and, uh, for some people they really help compliance, but it, in some situations I, you know, like I'll do some yearly blood work, just kind of ch to check in under the hood. But it's funny during the bulk of that, that transformation though, um, I just felt so much better. Like my sleep quality improved. Um, I, I regained health and vigor and my, my physical performance just exploded. I was a half decent athlete, you know, uh, uh, back in my youth. And then when I, when I was sick, it was, um, really demoralizing. I mean, it, it, getting out of bed was a workout was a challenge. Like I was really, really sick. So as I began to regain my health, um, I don't know if I didn't want to jinx it or, you know, what the deal was, but I was just kind of like very low quantification for sure. You know, yeah. I, I have looked at things over, over time, like, uh, tracking some markers of intestinal permeability and stuff like that. But I've always liked it. How do you look, how do you feel, how do you perform? And then we can track biomarkers of health or, or disease and maybe get some, uh, objective measures of what's going on, you know, sure. to kind of cement what we're up to. But I really like people just being in their skin and experiencing things. Like if you're looking better, feeling better, performing better, if last week you had one pull-up and this week you have three, we're going in the right direction. You know, if last week you had three pull-ups and this week we have one, uh, what are we up to? Are we skipping meals? Are we not getting enough protein? Are we not well-rested? Like those things are just so, um, honest that I, I, I stick a disproportionate amount of, of faith in that those objective things, you know, when we look in the mirror, when we, when we just feel how we feel in the morning and stuff like that. I couldn't yeah. agree with you more, you know, but, and maybe we'll get into, you know, momentarily the idea, I've got a, a, a pound of muscle in front of me here and a pound of fat and the idea that, you know, maintaining lean muscle mass, probably one of the best predictors of longevity and certainly prevention of sarcopenia or muscle mass loss uh, is one of those things that we want to keep you know, the proverbial finger on the pulse around so that uh, we do live longer, healthier lives. But, you know, given their family history that you just uh, shared with us, and of course, given your appreciation of at least one biomarker uh, that we could probably unpack a little more, and that's uh, glycosylated hemoglobin or A1C. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there was something that folks could go out there and ask their doctor to run more often, you don't have to have diabetes, but to understand, you know, what your sort of sugar uh, you know, levels are, it's not really levels, but ultimately what sugar is doing in your body over time and being better able to control that is probably a biomarker that you would advise folks maybe consider asking their doctors on the annual. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, A1C is interesting in that I, I, I think it, it, for sure in the United States, I think also in Canada, you can go into like a CVS pharmacy and get a pack of like three A1C tests and it's a little finger prick and it's maybe yep. 20 bucks or something. Um, like anything though, nothing is perfect. The, the bugger with, uh, what, what A1C tells us is our average blood sugar over about a 90 day period. Um, what's kind of problematic there is that for many people, 
they won't see elevation in blood sugar until very late in the game of developing prediabetes heading into diabetes. So they may have fairly normal blood sugar levels while the insulin resistance is wrapping up. So you could take that A1C and you still look pretty good, but your pancreas is, has just about lost the fight. It, it, it's had the, the, the snot beat out of it at that point. And so it's, um, it's a good one to look at, but it's, it's, uh, this is where sometimes, uh, triangulating in on things like, uh, I think also in, in Canada, it is available to get what's called an LPIR score, a lipoprotein Mm -hmm. insulin resistance score. I love that. Uh, as, uh, if we know the, uh, LDL particles, which is the low density lipoprotein particle count. And then we know that, um, LDL, uh, the insulin resistance score that's associated that comes out of that. And we look at some inflammatory markers. Uh, one of them is, uh, not nearly as well known as, as C-reactive protein, but it, it's super important. It tends to be stable. C-reactive protein is interesting. Like if I get a cold, the C- CRP can go sky high and then it, you know, it can go down. It can be super variable. Um, but that LPIR score is really powerful. And I, I guess if I were to, you know, if I had a gun held to my head and one biomarker to look at, or, you know, one, one, one lab test to look at, I I'd be hard pressed to improve on that because it gives us a really interesting insight into our insulin resistance or sensitivity gives us a pretty good look at, at some of the more important, uh, lipid fractions as they relate to cardiovascular disease and whatnot, um, inflammatory status. So that that's a goodie, the LPIR score. And I think most folks can probably get it for like 75 bucks, like out of pocket. Like it's not super expensive. Not going to break the bank. Well, my goal yeah. was achieved. I got you to attest to at least a single yeah, yeah. There you go. But I'm with you. I think, you know, that experience of feeling better, rolling out of bed with energy, ready to face the day, losing a couple of fat pounds and just, you know, feeling that subjective sense of energy and improve. And I've actually heard you say, your gym or workout is primary care medicine. It really starts yeah. there. And, you know, we're meant to push, pull, jump, squat, lift, among all these other things. And movement is so key to longevity. What, in your belief, is the most important thing about keeping this lean muscle mass I alluded to a moment ago and optimal movement in order to live your longest, healthiest life possible? I, I, I think you kind of laid it out there. Like, you know, if I, um, if, and I'm not suggesting that people need to become professional bodybuilders. So I'm, I'm, there's a, 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 uh, there's a point where muscle mass kind of diverges from health and longevity, like more muscle mass isn't necessarily going to, going to benefit things, but I'm five foot nine, 165 pounds. If I didn't strength train, I'd be still probably five foot nine, but probably about 135 pounds. So I carry about 35 to 40 pounds pounds of additional muscle because of, of strength training. I'm not huge, but it, you know, I, I have decent strength, decent mobility and all that type of stuff. Um, one of the greatest indicators of when folks die is when they've reached a point where they've lost 40% of their youthful muscle mass store. And it's interesting when, uh, when folks who are suffering from immunocompromised diseases, like uh, HIV AIDS, when the person dies, it's when they've lost significant muscle mass. Like there's a wasting process that occurs. 
Um, there's, there's immune function characteristics to that. There is just the reality of being able to just ambulate and move your body in a way that if we're so weak that getting out of bed exhausts us, like we, we have no capacity to adapt to, to anything. And, you know, like a two day a week, full body strength training thing. And it could just be, you know, you go in and there's a selectorized machine and you, you grab a weight and you do 15 reps, nice and easy and slow. And then you increase the weight and then maybe do six or, you know, eight or 10 reps, increase the weight and then do a hard four or five and you get a momentary failure. Then you do the same thing with a press and then you do a horizontal pull and then you do something with your legs some squatting, hinging, lunging movements. Uh, if you don't, if you don't know how to work out, then machines are usually a little bit safer, a little bit more accessible. I think spending a little bit of money to get a personal trainer to teach you how to do some good movement, but two days a week, uh, a 15 to 20 minute, let's say 30 minutes, five minutes of warm up, 15 minutes of actual strength training, but the strength training doesn't need to be a zillion sets. You know, again, right. you do a, a lightweight to relative failure a little bit more weight, a little bit more weight, and, and it gets your heart rate up. You get a little bit of a cardio stimulus. You do a full body workout, stretch, cool down, do a brief meditation at the end, and you're out the door. Like Certainly less than 45 minutes. You're in, you're out. You do that twice a week. And it, I, I, I fail to even think of a real world like return on investment analogy. Like, sure. You, it, it, it is as if every dollar you put in the bank, somebody is paying you a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. Like that two days of, of strength training is so incredible. And then beyond that a little bit of low level cardio, but I mean, that's basically walking, maybe walking with a weight vest, walking with a weighted backpack doesn't need to be a really high, um, motor output it's what's called zone two cardio. And it's just, just at the point where you can breathe through your nose only, but just kind of barely like shouldn't be able to have a conversation, right? You shouldn't, shouldn't be, be able, able to, to talk on your phone or, yeah. you know, on that, on that note of credit on that note, that analogy of, uh, you know, <clears throat> I like to call this, you know, health and investment, never an expense, but on that credit note, I mean, I think one, one of the messages here, if I'm understanding correctly, is like, don't necessarily have to improve your credit rating, but at least work to maintain it. I mean, we, you know, salvaging yeah. and maintaining whatever muscle mass you have. And of, of course, potentially losing a few fat pounds is always in the, is, is always on the agenda. Uh, so as to manage that ratio and carry that leanness into late, later age, you know, I, I believe that probably this is more or as important uh, as diet. I mean, movement yep. is huge. A lot of folks over-focus on nutrients, and, and but you don't have movement corrected first. And by the way, my argument's this. Everyone's got a bloody floor. You know, you can do some calisthenics, and you can do a lot. You against gravity. Right. <clears throat> But, but on that note of nutrition, you know, we need to move away from fad diets. We, you know, we, we honor the fact that we are wired to eat. You wrote the book, yet we have as much food as we want, whenever we want it, on pretty much whatever budget. Tell us about, you know, this is the theme of the book, how we can turn off cravings, essentially maybe rewire appetite for weight loss, our same goals as we're wanting to move more and determine foods that work for this N of one, us. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I you know a a maybe a, a a streamlined look at that. A vegan diet will work for some people. A lower carb paleo type diet will work for some people. The the commonality between those it, and the thing that I don't find work that often for most people is 
portion control of all the food, which is funny mm. because that's kind of the thing that we get most often from dietitians and doctors. You know, they don't want us to limit anything. There is a, a, a camp out there. If it fits your macros, like you can eat whatever you want. You just have to stay within certain ratios with it. It's true that it, it is true, but I find it devilishly hard for a lot of people to do it. And I mean, truth be told, it's devilishly hard to do any of this stuff. Most yeah. diets fail and, and all that. So I'll, I'll be transparent and honest with all that. But the thing that's interesting about a, a low fat, high carb diet, vegan type diet versus a low carb, uh, uh, higher fat diet, you're limiting palate options to some degree. And, and pizzas may be a great example of this. Um, a really good pizza has protein, it has carbs, it has fat, and they're able to come together in this way that has amazing mouthfeel and texture and, and all that. And it's damn hard to stop eating it. Like it's very easy to, to overeat that thing, but let's think about a vegan pizza. It's okay. Like it's got carbs. Yeah. It's not really going to have much fat because you're not going to have real cheese on it. It's going to be kind of a fake cheese and the cheese isn't really that good. You're not going to have animal products on there. It's probably going to be kind of low sodium and everything. So it's okay, but it's, eh, you're not going to overeat it. Like you're, you're, it's, you know, it's Play-Doh on cardboard for me, man. That's yeah. What... <laughs> yeah. And, and then the flip side, and I'm, I'm a big fan of low carbon ketogenic diets, but keto pizza, it's okay. It's okay. You know, but you never get like this crunchy crust. You've got the meat, you got the cheese, you got the sauce. That's all pretty good, but you're kind of like, I should just eat this out of a bowl, you know, sure. like whatever crust is there, whether it's almond flour, eh, it's okay. But what these things end up doing is it limits palate options to some degree. And, and it's that really broad palate experience. Like if we could, there's an example I have in the book and I have it on my website. This guy, Adam Rickman, man versus food is a show he was on for years and he had this thing called the uh, kitchen sink ice cream sundae challenge, where he has like an eight pound ice cream sundae the guy has to eat. And it literally is served in a kitchen sink. And he starts eating it and he gets maybe about a third of the way through, not very far in. And he starts really bogging down. He starts turning green and he, he's gagging as he's trying to eat this thing. Because as good as an ice cream sundae is, at some point, people experience palate fatigue. They're like, I'm done. And it'll actually make them throw up if they eat more of it. Reminds but me of my high school days, my high school experiences with tequila. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But somehow we end up going back to the tequila for some, <laughs> right. some damn reason. But, um, but uh, what Adam does in this case to, to finish this challenge is crazy. And it kind of it blows what most dietitians tell us, you know, this like everything in moderation, just like out of the window. What he does is he orders a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. And the French fries are hot and savory, umami, salty, which is as different from this cool, creamy, sweet ice cream as you could get. And he starts eating a couple of French fries and then taking a couple of bites of ice cream and eating a couple of French fries and taking a couple of bites of ice cream. And it's that mixed palate experience that allows him to eat all of the ice cream. And I, I can't emphasize this enough. He would have never finished the ice cream without the French fries. And the French fries were at least another 2000 calories of food that he ate. That's interesting. So, and, and this is where we've got to get beyond we really do need to understand how we're genetically wired to eat. And we sure. seek out novelty. We seek out, you know, a varied 
palate experience. And so one way or another, what we have to figure out a way of eating is eat in a way that we enjoy it enough, but it's not like a complete, you know, cocaine and debauchery binge every, every time we have a meal, you know, you just can't, you just can't do that. You know, we, if we eat three meals a day, seven days a week, 21 meals, if 18 to 19 of those meals are pretty on point, it's a real food that our grandparents would have recognized as food. We're good. We're, we're, we're pretty good. But if it's the inverse, if 18 or 19 of those meals is something out of a box, a can, a bag, and, and we're only rarely eating real food, we're, we're, we're lost. Like it, it's sure. just not going to work. And again, to maybe use a financial analogy there, if we spend more money than we make, we're going to end up bankrupt. And, and there's not, there's no moral failing there. There's, it, this is just consequences. Like you spent more than you made. So you yeah. are bankrupt. You know, if we, if we eat in a way that causes us to overeat and to overeat chronically, we're going to have poor health. We're not going to look, feel, and perform as, as good as we would otherwise want to. And so again, I think some people do pretty well on high carb, low fat. I think that's probably more like a quarter or a third of the population. I think two thirds of people probably do better with a little bit of carbohydrate, you know, restriction and control doesn't mean they have to be keto diet or carnivore. If you like those, that's fine. But, you know, it can be some somewhere along the line, ketogenic diets got so popular that people forgot that there's just kind of moderate carb diets. You know, <laughs> you can have an apple, you can have some fruit. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Carbs yeah. have been fully demonized. It reminds me, there's this interesting gene I've been looking at more and more over the years, APOA2. A uh, good 25% or so of the population uh, you know, have that within their <clears throat> genetic aptitude, I like to affectionately refer to, and that if they try the keto diet and manage it uh, you know, for a good month or more, not only do they have that terrible keto flu more than average, but actually they end up putting on pounds. Uh, mm -hmm. There's this genetic susceptibility to storage of fats uh, from a high-fat diet. For some, not for all, right. but I, I took your points there, and... Um, and there's a lot. So first of all, we're not we're not bomb calorie meters, you know, directly. I mean, we will assimilate differently depending on what our biological makeup is. Obviously, emphasis on movement uh, that has to be there. And, um, you know, palate, you know, we're, we're engineered in a way to seek diversity and eat. We're, we're wired to eat. We're, we're meant to consume whenever we possibly can. So when there's all kinds of options in front of us. Um, you know, it, it's, it's our Achilles heel. It's built into us. You know, it's, it's like jumping from book to book. You've written so much and you've got such great insights on so much and I hate to do it, but you make this huge case for meat, uh, in your latest book, you know, sacred cow and, and why well-raised meat is good for everyone on the planet. It's another massive undertaking. Uh, but, but what is the summary here perhaps with an angle on health span? Should we all be eating meat? I know you said there's reservations for some folks to be vegan if they know what to do, but generally speaking, what is this argument? The, the, the main thing is uh, if we really take climate change seriously, and I think everybody should, then we really need to get that story right. You know, it's a little bit like uh, if we were facing brain surgery and our neurosurgeon came in and the person had on oven mitts and like some, some welding goggles. And I'm like, doc, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm such a good surgeon that I want to make this a challenge. You're like, no, this is pretty complex. I want it to be easy, you know, and, uh, climate change is a really important, complex topic and it behooves us to get this right. And the narrative that is going on right now in the world is that animal husbandry is the primary driver and the primary 
problem of climate change. And it is just patently false. Like whatever the other limitations of animal husbandry are, it is at most 2% of the total greenhouse gas inputs into the system. And it's worth mentioning also that living systems are part of a biogenic cycle. They're part of the carbon cycle. There's carbon in the atmosphere. Plants take that carbon in and turn it into protein, carbs, and fat. Organisms eat those plants, either, um, you know, the, the plant is then, you know, released, uh, you know, back out into the environment as carbon dioxide right. or methane, but it's all part of a, a closed loop circuit. This is very, very different than the emissions that come out of the tailpipe of a car or out of a, a jet engine, which is yeah. really where we should be looking at this story, trying to demonize it's as silly to demonize cows eating grass as it is to demonize termites eating wood. It's literally the same process. And if you want to start calling cows for, for climate change issues, you're going to end up creating worse problems the same way that if we start calling, and there are people that are suggesting people have gotten so carbon tunnel vision. There are actually people that are advocating that we should exterminate large amounts of termites because they really release methane as part of their, their life cycle. <laughs> it is madness. And it's funny when I talk to children about this, the children get this immediately. Like it's very easy for them to grok this thing in adults. It's, it's, uh, it's pulling teeth, but you're not um, politicized. You know, they're, they're, they they do not have yeah, specific agendas. Yeah. It's quite clear. It is. It's, it's not quite black and white, but <clears throat> it's a lot more simple than I think a lot of people make it out to be. Yeah. You know, but, but, but specifically fast forwarding, you know, this is an argument. I absolutely on the same page uh, as you are. And you are the one that educated me largely on the topic, but if we're talking and that makes sense as it pertains to longevity, by the way, of our planet, I mean, if it's going to yeah. be around for any measurable sense in term of uh, our future, um, you know, got to take care of it and learn that this is really not the way we should be focusing. Uh, there are other ways, more industrial ways. Um, but, but, but as it pertains to eating meat, that it is a complete protein with all the essential amino acids, you know, folic acid, B12, things that are harder to get in other non-meat. And of course, the big caveat is grass-fed, you know, sustainably uh, raised. Um, should most of us, if not all of us, be eating meat if we want to live a longer, healthier, more complete life? The short answer is yes. The slightly okay. longer answer is that it's much easier to not overeat if we eat adequate protein from animal sources. And that's really the big deal. The Eat Lancet uh, did a, a piece that was suggesting that we should cut all, you know, all animal products out of the the Western diet. And the, there was a, a really well done rebuttal to this, which pointed out that there would be huge nutrient deficiencies, irons, B vitamins, zinc, and a, a number of others. And that because of the lower protein intake, people would tend to overeat. And there's this thing called the protein leverage hypothesis that suggests that most organisms eat to a protein minimum. And once they eat enough protein, they tend to not overeat mm. things then. And this is one of the the big problems, whether you eat a high carb diet or a low carb diet, one of the, the commonalities is that, you know, like a bodybuilder diet is typically a high carb diet, but it's also high protein. And when people eat adequate protein, they tend to not eat overeat other, other things. And to get the same amount of amino acids, essential amino acids from, uh, it would cost us 200 calories of meat to get a given amount of essential amino acids. It costs us 800 calories of beans and rice to get the same amount 
of essential right. amino acids. So people inevitably end up overeating and they end up hungry all the time, you know, as a, as a consequence of this. So it, I think that there are a, a host of sustainability issues that are important to consider when we, when we think about the animal husbandry topic, but the nutrient deficiencies, and then also the tendency to overeat if we don't get adequate protein, it, it's real and it's very well established in the literature. And although the, the bulk of what we get from social media suggests that there's this quote consensus on this, it, it's kind of, it, it's a lie. You know, there are different views on this. There, there's in science, there's consensus around things like if I've got a pool table and I hit a pool cue in a particular way at a particular angle that I can predict where things go, it's a very simplistic system. And we have stuff like that buttoned up. Um, we know where the planets are going to be and what orientation a hundred years from now, like we we've got things like that buttoned up, but you get into economies and ecologies and our biology these are the most complex systems in the universe. And we just don't fully understand that. And so there's error bars on things, you know, like you pointed out, I mentioned that I think that maybe, uh, maybe two thirds of people would benefit from a carbohydrate restricted diet. And that's probably true. But then we have that APOE2, you know, genotype that may be really undermined by a higher fat diet. Like they would probably do well from an adequate protein, higher carb, moderate fat, mainly from monounsaturated fat approach. Yeah. Like, and there's good, good data to support that. What that means is their situation is different, you know, <laughs> and that's so right. we have to, we have to honor that. Yeah. Not to mention, uh, the forces that be within, uh, evolution and natural selection that we're contending with at any given time. Um, you know, so in many of these topics, um, seem to go from, they're not really fad, uh, they, they can be fad it's not even a word, but they can become fat, fat, fatticized, I suppose, in social media, um, you know, and go from well-researched to eventually perhaps even boring, by the way, or at the very least, you know, they lose their sexiness. So people are on to the next thing. But, but this is where I want to transition at this point. You've done this deep dive recently into electrolytes um, and why they're so important to health and maybe even longevity, by the way. Can you unpack this for me? The company, you know, the, the brand is called Element, L-M-N-T. Um, I love the product. As I talked to you off camera earlier on, I'm, I'm using it uh, in my daily routine, my workout routine, um, and I'm combining things like collagen and, you know, doing some stacks with uh, ribose. Uh, I love the AMPK aspect mm -hmm. of that. You know, enhance uh, mitochondria whenever we can. The, the you know develop the currency of energy. But but why why electrolytes? You know, most folks would think like I got to avoid salt in my diet, or I think right. I might be consuming too much from the standardized uh, North American diet. I mean, tell us about this. You know, this is an incredibly interesting angle that you've taken. It, it's a funny story and it's one of humility it, it, more than anything else. Like I'm a half decent biochemist. I've written some New York times bestselling books, uh, I, but I've struggled with, um, fueling the type of activity that I'd like to do. I participate in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I do some kind of high intensity type workouts, but I feel best eating a lower carb diet. And those two things are really at odds with each other because the jujitsu is kind of a glycogen carbohydrate fueled activity for the most part. And it's just been, been tough over the last 23 years to really make all that stuff work. But I kept poking around and I, I found a couple of guys, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, they're the founders of a, a program called Keto Gains. And they were just earlobe deep with people who were um, low carb diet, 
but performing at a high level in like CrossFit and jujitsu and, and different things, these very glycogen demanding workouts. I'm like, what on earth are they doing? You know? So I got to be friends with them and ask them to look at what I was up to. And they took a look, you know, I had like a diet log and everything. And they're like, oh, you're good on protein, carbs, fat, but you really need more electrolytes, specifically sodium. And probably back in 2000, 2001, I, I had figured out, and I think it was Mike Eads that really put this on my, my radar, Dr. Michael Eads, but I, I made the association with insulin resistance and hypertension. So I knew from the research that low sodium diets don't fix hypertension. If you have hypertension, you don't necessarily benefit from eating a bunch of extra sodium, but also low sodium diets don't fix the problem because the main problem is insulin resistance. So I wasn't afraid of sodium, but I also wasn't really savvy to how important it was, particularly for somebody at a high motor output, you know, a high functioning athlete and whatnot. But, um, these guys are some of the best people in the world at coaching folks with a, a low carb ketogenic diet. And, uh, like most people, when I'm confronted with an expert and they tell me what I should do, I ignore them for at least a year. So these guys became dear, <laughs> dear friends and were very, um, patient with me, but I kept whining and complaining about my situation and, oh no, it can't be the sodium though. Finally, one day they, they did something crazy. They said, why don't we quantify this? Which goes back to one of your first questions, you know, of, yeah. of our interview, what are you quantifying? What are you looking at? So they, they invited me to document all of what I was eating and supplementing into something like chronometer, you know, where it, it told you your protein, carbs, fat, and how much, uh, sodium, potassium, zinc, magnesium that you're consuming. And they said, we would really like to see you at at least five grams of sodium per day. And I was at less than two grams of sodium. And so they, they asked me if I was working out that day, I said, yes. And so they suggested I take like six ounces of pickle juice and just sip on that before the workout. And I had the best workout I had had in like 15 years. And I was <laughs> just mind blown, you know? And so I told these guys, man, guys sodium and electrolytes are really important. And they're like, yeah, you're an idiot. We've known this for like eight years, you know, but what we ended up doing is I, I knew that the group of people that I serve probably 95% of the problems that people had like elevated heart rate, difficulty sleeping, some thyroid issues were probably caused by sodium causing stress, you know, inadequate sodium causing a stress response. So we put together this thing, a guide for making your own, uh, electrolyte beverage at home. And we called it keto aid. And it basically told you to use this much table salt, this much, uh, no salt, which is potassium chloride some magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia, shake it up, drink it. And, and you're off and running. And we just put this thing on our websites. And I, six months later, we had a half million downloads of this thing. Like it mm. went like wildfire. We couldn't believe it. And people were just raving, my, my sleep is better, my recovery is better, my performance is better, my heart rate variability score has improved, everything's great. The only thing that I don't like is when I travel, the TSA doesn't like my three bags of white powder that I'm traveling uh -huh. with. You know, would, would you sure. guys do some sort of a convenience play? And so it, it was literally me learning that I needed more electrolytes, me realizing that the people that I serve needed more electrolytes. And then us doing this free downloadable guide, and then these folks really benefiting from it, but asking for a more convenient option because most of the, uh, 
most of the electrolytes available are really underpowered in, in sodium in particular. And, sure. uh, and, you know, some of the, the, the background science, like there's some really fascinating recent studies that look at, uh, sodium intake and all cause mortality, um, uh, total, total health span and lifespan. And the, there's kind of a U curve and at about five grams of sodium intake per day is where all cause mortality is best and where health span is best. It's quite severe at the low end, like being too low in right. sodium is more dangerous. It, it's a more gentle slope. You have to get up to about 10 grams of sodium intake per day to be as at risk for death or illness as two grams per day. Interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's worth noting when 85% of the sodium that people consume daily in westernized, uh, you know, circumstances comes from processed food. Yeah. So whenever somebody makes a move from processed food to minimally processed food, the person goes vegan, they go paleo, they go low carb, their sodium intake plummets. It's a window Usually of opportunity the person, it, it absolutely. And it's crazy. So this is where the, the irony, and, and you know, when we look at traditional cultures, like traditional Japanese food has a ton of sodium in it. When you look at traditional, um, uh, Italian, my wife's Italian, the, the salamis, the sardines, the olives, the, the little charcuterie type pickle things, they have really dense sodium sources in addition to their minimally processed food that right. is rich in magnesium, rich in potassium. We have to, it, we have to have the potassium and magnesium in high abundance, but if we're eating a minimally processed diet, we usually do really well on that. But then we're, we're ironically typically deficient in sodium if we're eating whole minimally processed foods. And then if you're eating a little bit on the low carb side or you're active or it's hot and humid, all of those things can double or triple your, your sodium needs, your electrolyte needs. So right. we, we see folks that, you know, uh, if they're eating low carb or even kind of moderately low carb, they may need five grams of sodium per day. And then they start training outside for a Spartan race and they live in a hot, humid environment. They may find that they need 12 grams of sodium per day. Well, that's the other thing I was going to say. I don't want to make the case for you, but these deficiencies, as you alluded to, they can happen very acutely. You know, I mean, you know, it's not like vitamin D where you ramp up and you finally get yourself to optimal levels. And then, you know, weeks and months go by where you've got that opportunity. And you also alluded to, you know, I suppose a, a hormetic effect, <clears throat> you know, inverse uh, bell curve, one in which is a little more lenient on the uh, right side of that. But ultimately what that means is that too little is going to kill you too much. takes a while to get there, may also kill you. But that's that Goldilocks amount that we kind of all yep. need in order to. And by the way, again, you know, folks should understand, you know, uh, electrolytes, not exclusively salt or sodium, but all the rest that you mentioned, you know, sodium is uh, important, but the magnesium and the potassium, um, we're bioelectric beings. I mean, this is not right. just about satisfying cellular chemistry. This is the electrical conductivity that goes on with our nervous systems that ultimately engage with our muscles, coordination, brain function. You mentioned sleep, the ability to even get uh, into sleep. Let me ask you this, Rob. Because uh, we got to wind down here, time uh, specifically. Um, besides uh, electrolytes, anything that you take uh, daily that you hope will ultimately put years on your life? Oh, daily. So I suffer from something called essential tremor syndrome, and have since I was a, a kid. Uh, really common in folks with celiac disease. Uh, have never really tracked down whether 
I suffered, uh, say like neurological damage from the celiac disease and it's just kind of carried on, or maybe some low grade cross reactivity that I get, you know, here and there, but it, it's, um, it's definitely a thing. It's definitely problematic. It's worsened over time. What I've learned in that situation is decreased caffeine or stimulant intake is huge. Otherwise I, you know, really, you know, shaky hands and stuff like that. But I started using some lion's mane mushroom with it. Mm. And, uh, that has been stunning for me. I mean, absolutely stunning. And, uh, Lions made, and I have no, no company to endorse there. There are good ones out there. I let people track them down, but, um, from Parkinson's to Alzheimer's dementia, uh, various tremor syndromes. I've recommended this to, to folks that are experiencing some sort of neurological issue. And I've just been floored how, how powerful that is. And I, I think doing yeah, a, a glycemic controlled, diet. Uh, maybe if somebody doesn't want to eat a super low carb diet, like maybe doing 15 milliliters, a tablespoon of MCT oil, each meal supplementing with some lion's mane, but, um, uh, hedging your bets on that, that neurological decline side is I, I think a big, big deal. And, uh, uh, Bryce, I, I can't even, you know, like I was reaching a point where like the, you know, it was kind of hard to, to drink out of a cup like this, and four months of fiddling with lion's mane. And, and also I got to say, like, I have to do decaf tea now. I can't, can't do regular tea. I can't do regular coffee. Like the stimulants will, will really fire that up. But I, I was reaching a spot where I had to be really conscious in social circles. You know, the way that I was drinking, I would use straws because that was kind of less, less of an issue because of the tremor, but that's been shockingly beneficial for me. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Essential well, tremor is a, that's intriguing. Uh, uh, you know, lion's yeah. mane's got so many interesting uh, mechanisms of actions, of course, that, you know, still come down the pipe in terms of what scientists are deciphering. But, um, you know, it, it, we talked about this almost coming full circle immunomodulation, yep. um, you know, as it, as it pertains to adaptogenicity or management of stress, perhaps that's one of the mechanisms that you're yep. seeing some uh, specific um, benefits from. I got to throw this one out there, though, just on the same topic. <clears throat> I'm a huge fan of theanine which oh, okay. is also found in green tea, uh, which carries a lot of caffeine. But when you drink a, a you know cup of green tea or matcha, which may actually be as, in some instances, saturated uh, or caffeine heavy as a average cup of coffee, easily contains a, you know, 90, 100 milligrams of caffeine in a cup of matcha. But the theanine counteracts uh, caffeine's mm -hmm. uh, specific, you know, ability to, you know, rev us up, amp us up in our nervous system, <clears throat> stimulant. So theanine kind of counteracts it. Um Sun theanine, and I got to say this as an as the active ingredient folks should be looking for because it's the one that's got 90 plus clinical trials behind it as a raw material. Um, but 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 the idea is that sun theanine um, can actually induce alpha wave activity. Hmm. Um, it's been it's been proven, and of course that's the you know when you're when you've got whether it's an essential tremor, or you're just too jacked up or ramped up. You know your 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 nervous system is overactive, and theanine can really enhance that calm, but also a state of focus, alertness, attention, um, and relaxation without suppressing. I just you know for folks to you know to 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 uh, to try that, especially during your active meditation. By the way, theanine, uh, especially in the in the form of of sun theanine. How old does Rob Wolf want to live? I mean, are you looking? Uh, you mentioned you're fifty. Uh, you're looking to live into your hundreds. What's your goal? I think 
I think realistically, like if I can uh, still be kicking a little bit of ass in my 90s and then have a, a real quick, rapid decline, I, I think that that's, that's both reasonable and, um, uh, you know, miraculous li- being born at the, the time that I was and lived the life that I, I did. And uh, I, I did a talk uh, at the very beginning of COVID called Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And I'm not in the camp that believes that like a ton of fasting and fiddling with autophagy and everything is a guarantee of preventing cancer. I I think it may induce sarcopenia to such a degree that these folks who are trying to live forever are going to end up with a hip fracture and unable to care for themselves in their, their late sixties, early seventies. I think it's going to go exactly the opposite, but I, you know, if, um, if I can keep my marbles about me, if I can maintain continence, if I can maintain some strength and, and vigor and muscle mass, and I could live into my nineties and be effective. I basically lived a double life. You know, I mean, it, it it's, uh, I didn't live 200 years, but I lived almost a hundred years and all of it was good. That's pretty amazing. So that that's kind of my, my benchmark. And, uh, you know, who knows, somebody may unravel some, you know, uh, cellular reset mechanism. It's fascinating that, that cancer and longevity are get, when we crack one, we're going to probably crack the other one. Cause they're really, tightly related. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe I'll live long enough to, to, you know, get a, get a reprieve from the, from the reaper on that, but that's kind of my, my game plan. That sounds realistic. I think I'm with you on that. And I also want to get out there that most of, you know, what we might want to do in our aspiration to live a longer, healthier life, certainly square the curve as you're alluding to is not actually prohibitively expensive. It's all the real simple stuff, uh, that if you listen to this podcast back, you'll, you'll hear you say, um, you know, it's getting moving. It's, uh, yep. you know, looking at clean meat. It is balancing simple biochemistry, starting from grassroots at electrolytes. It's, uh, you know, managing a, a logistical state of mind versus reaching for these ethereal, you know, save me, um, you know, elixirs. <clears throat> and I think most folks have this misunderstanding that health is, uh, you know, expensive. It's not to your credit analogy earlier on as well. It's, it's never an expense. It's always an investment. Rob, you know, thanks so much for joining me today. For more information on all that Rob is up to, visit Rob Wolf. That's double B, by the way, uh, for folks who have not yet been familiar with Rob. So R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F.com, where you can also find a link to the Healthy Rebellion Radio weekly podcast featuring listener questions and answers. A lot of uh, option to um, add and weigh in on uh, what all all the things that Rob has to, to say, all things diet and health. And you can also follow Rob on Instagram at Das Rob Wolf. Thanks so much for joining me today on Wild on Health, Seeking Health, man, my friend. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it.